in Colossians chapter 1, verses 3 through 8, we find Paul and Timothy engaged in the worship of God, if you will. We are told, first of all, that they Eucharistumen, they give thanks to God, particularly God as the Father of the Lord Jesus. Secondly, they not only give thanks, they regularly, repeatedly make direct petitionary prayer to God. They ask things of God in prayer in the behalf of the Colossians. They regularly, repeatedly pray to God asking him to bless the Colossians. We are told that the first occasion of this thanksgiving and petition, when they first began to do these things with regard to the Colossians, was when they heard a report of the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus and their love to all the saints. In short, when they heard that the Colossians had manifested in profession and life the true salvation, faith in Christ and love to the brethren being the cardinal, the inseparable works of that state, and also being parallel to the summary of the law as given by Christ, faith being parallel to the love of God and love to all the saints being parallel to love of the neighbor, and ultimately parallel to the, all the law itself. And this, of course, is not only the commencement of their thanksgiving, they didn't just, uh, they didn't just begin to give thanks uh, right then and then forgot about the faith and the, and the love, but these things function as part of the subject, the continuing subject of their thanksgiving. They were thanking God continually for that faith, for that love which he had given to the Colossians in an act of his free grace. And that much we considered last week in detail with applications. Now, the next clause is very important. Uh, let's, let's go back and read uh, verse 3 and onward a little ways. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have to all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you, as it is in all the world, and brings forth fruit, as it does also in you, since the day you heard of it, and knew the grace of God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. Now thus far we've talked about, we give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love which you have to all the saints. And the next clause is in the first half of verse 5. For the hope, or on account of, or because of the hope, which is laid up for you in heaven, or in the heavens. Now this clause is important for several reasons. First of all, the grammar of the text indicates that while Paul and Timothy certainly thanked God for the Colossians' faith and love, yet the ground 
of their thanksgiving, the basis of their thanksgiving, and in fact the subject of their thanksgiving, was not those things alone, but is revealed here to be the hope stored up for them in the heavens. We thank God, we are thanking God, on account of the hope stored up for you in the heavens. Secondly, this clause is important because it serves as a kind of pivot in the text, like a, like a, 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 a hinge on a door which opens it from one way to another. In one position, this text, this text, this clause serves, uh, is connected with our subject matter so far and, uh, serves as a commentary on it, explaining the basis for their thanksgiving. But then it's going to pivot over and serve in another capacity, and it will be swung by the, by the apostle into a, di- into a digression about the arrival and fruitfulness of the gospel amongst the Colossians. And this is a very important digression, for reasons which we have mentioned before, and we'll repeat again as we get to that place in the exposition. So it's it, it's a it's a it's a pivotal clause in the true sense of the word, uh, explaining on the one hand the basis of the thanksgiving of uh, Paul and Timothy, and then swinging over on the other hand to provide the foundation for this digression about the arrival of the gospel. Now. To proceed, uh, we will look first of all at the meaning of this clause independently. What is the hope stored up for them in the heavens? That's the first thing we're going to look at. Secondly, we will consider the clause as it relates to the giving of thanks. How is this the ground? Why is this the subject of their regular thanksgivings to God? And then thirdly, we will see some applications two or three applications from the text. So we look first at the meaning of this clause. What is the hope stored up for you in the heavens? Now the first thing we have to notice is that there is something called a metonymy here and that the word hope is put in this clause for the thing hoped for. In other words, hope itself is not stored up for them in the heavens. Uh, that wouldn't make any sense. Hope is an attribute. Hope is a thing that we do. We have hope for something. Hope isn't stored up there. He means the thing hoped for, the thing for which they hope, is stored up in the heavens. Now this is a common biblical substitution. I'll cite one example and uh, give another one to you to look up yourselves. Titus 2.13, a very clear example. He says, the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. So the word hope here is put for the thing hoped for. What they hope for is the return of Jesus Christ. And so it's called hope, even though it's the thing hoped for. Another example is Galatians 5.5. You can look that up sometime. But this is our first observation about this text then. It is not the attribute, it is not the grace of hope 
that's stored up for them in the heavens, but rather the object of the hope. Now, what is the object of the hope? Well, we'll talk about that in a moment. Uh, the second thing I want to do, by way of exposition of this text, is to remind ourselves of the meaning of the word hope as it is used in the scriptures, because it's different from how we use it. We've talked about this before, and I'll just remind you of it again. Among us, we use the word hope to describe something that we wish would happen, but might possibly happen, but about which we have no certainty or Expect certain expectation that it will happen. In fact, we use it intentionally to leave room for contingency, for the possibility that a thing won't happen. We say, we hope to have children. I hope to buy a new car next year. I hope to find a new job, something like that, you know. Does it mean that we are in certain expectation and persuaded of the fact that the thing will happen? In fact, it means we're not certain at all that it will happen. We just hope that it will happen. Well, that's not how the Bible uses the word hope. It has other language to refer to that type of concept, uh, Lord willing being one of the principal ones. The word, the biblical usage of the word hope is very, very different. Rather than showing possibility merely or contingency, it instead refers to expectation, persuasion, and certainty. In fact, we might say that it is belief or faith applied to a yet future event. Belief or faith applied to a yet future event. For example, Romans chapter 8. Verse 24 and 25, think of this language. For we are saved by hope. But hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man sees, why does he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Now there's no contingency here at all. There's no possibility, it's certainty. But it's just that it isn't here yet. We don't see it, it hasn't arrived. We're waiting on it patiently. But but hope, we're saved by hope. What else do we, he says we're saved by faith elsewhere. So faith and hope are very closely conjoined. Hope being faith directed towards a thing that, ha that we can't see yet, hasn't come yet. We have to wait for it with patience. Hope is certain enough, in fact, that it can be a ground of rejoicing. Romans 12, 12. He says, rejoicing in hope. Now, you don't rejoice in something that you're not even certain that it's going to happen yet. There's just some possibility or something like that. No. You have to have an expectation, a certainty, a persuasion. In fact, the idea of hope in Scripture is essentially tied to the yet unaccomplished promises of God. And that is why scripture hope is expectation and persuasion and eager waiting. You understand what I'm saying here? Hope is tied to the promise of God, so we know that it's going to happen. But it hasn't happened yet. So it's yet unaccomplished promises of God. It's our expectation and persuasion and waiting upon those things. Romans, again, Romans... Uh, Chapter 15, verse 4. 
He says, for whatsoever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. So hope is based, biblical hope is based upon the word of God, upon the things that were written before in the scriptures. Another example, two examples from uh, Paul's letter to Titus again. Titus chapter 1 verse 2. He, he says, uh, he says, he's a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the faith of God's elect and the acknowledging of the truth which is after godliness. Now verse 2. In hope of eternal life, which God that cannot lie promised before the world began. So eternal life is a promise of God from before the foundation of the world. So hope is based upon the promise. And also, chapter 2 of the same letter, verse 13, again, looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior Jesus Christ. Well, what thing is more certain than that Christ will appear again? And so hope is based upon the promise. So then... Uh, I'm not going to say that this is the exclusive meaning or usage of the word, but I will say this, that it's the basic, the major meaning, the one that's generally to be expected. Hope is an expectation, a persuasion, a faith in, an eager waiting for the future accomplish, accomplishment of some promise of God that has not yet been fulfilled. Now the scriptures, now let's talk about what is this hope. Of course, the scriptures refer to many things that are the objects of Christian hope. And all that we are told in this particular text of this hope is that it is stored up for you in the heavens. It is a hope stored up for you in the heavens. This first word, uh, apokimai, literally to be laid up, is used uh, uh, only three other times in the New Testament. It means to be stored up, to be reserved to be preserved in waiting for someone or something. Uh, a couple of uh, clear examples, and one that's not so clear. Uh, Luke 19, verse 20. Uh, this is the, the parable of the, uh, of the uh, talents, or of the pounds, in this case, I think it may be. He says, uh, he says, verse 20, he says, Another came saying, Lord, behold, here is thy pound which I have kept laid up in a napkin. You see, his, his idea was, Lord, you gave me the pound, so I stored it away for you, for when you would come back. I knew you would come back, so I stored it away for you in a napkin. It was laid up for you. Okay? Second Timothy 4, verse 8. Our second uh, clear example. <laughs> Henceforth there is laid up for me, because I have fought the good fight and kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but to all them that also love his appearing. So, there's a day coming, he says, and, and there's a crown of righteousness that's stored up, treasured up for me with the Lord. And I'm going to get it then. I'm, I'm going, there's a day coming and I'll get it. Then the, the example that's a little less clear, but I think is still significant, is the book of Hebrews, chapter 9, verse 27. And as it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. Now that is, it's in the word appointed. This is our word, laid up. Death 
is looked upon here as something laid up for man. It's in store for It's not something that happens to you, principally. It's something laid up for you. It's already there. You're going to get it someday. It's a day coming and you're going to get death. And then after that, the judgment. So whatever they were hoping for then is something that was stored away, laid up, kept in storage, uh, awaiting a particular day. They knew also that this thing stored away was destined for them. Because the apostle says it was stored away for you. Uh, there's something important, I think, about this language that I'd like to point out. The thing that they were expecting was already real. It was a present reality. So you don't say, uh, you don't say, well, I've, I, uh, I've stored up something I'm going to do to you. You don't say that at all. You could say, I've stored up something I'm going to give to you has to be something that's already real, already made, something they were going to receive, something that already existed but which they hadn't yet obtained. The only other identifying mark we're given in this specific text is the place of storage, and that is it is in the heavens, and that is plural, as is the usual, uh, in fact, perhaps the constant scriptural uh, way of stating it. I don't know why. People insist on putting it in the singular. No reason to depart from the biblical usage there. Why is it in the plural? I don't know. Uh, Paul does say that he he was caught up to the third heaven, which is an interesting thing in 2 Corinthians 12 too. So it's always called the heavens. So it's stored up in the heavens. And so thus far, we know that this is a, this is a hope of a thing stored up, stored up in heaven, stored up by God, with God, awaiting a future day. And uh, the idea of this text, I think if we can uh, give something of an earthly illustration, uh, I remember when I was a child, uh, I, I knew that my birthday would roll around once a year, and we would have uh, the giving of gifts on the birthday, and also uh, in, in our house at uh, Christmas time at that time. And uh, my parents, I always knew, would go out before then, and would purchase whatever it is they were going to give me. And they would put it, they had a closet in their, in their bedroom, big closet, and they would put it in there. And it was always in the back of the closet, it would be in boxes, and sometimes it was already wrapped, you know. And, uh, and I knew those things were there. I knew that I was going to get them on a particular day. I knew which day it was, too. But I didn't have them. They were stored up. It was a gift that was stored up or laid up for me in my parents' closet. It was a very similar idea here. Some, some gift stored up for the Colossians in the closet, if you will, of their heavenly father. Now, what was specifically this hope? Which hope is it? What is the thing hoped for here? <clears throat> to answer this, we have to look at the parallel, or remember the parallel. Uh, do you remember, I think it was last week or the week before, we went through and showed how this section parallels verses 9 through 12, and that the parallel in verse 12 to this part of this text is the inheritance of the saints in light, or literally the portion of the portion of the saints in the light. And without delving into this completely, because I, don't wait, I want to wait till verse 12 for that, uh, let's simply say that the hope referred to is the hope of the heavenly inheritance, the true Canaan, 
the heavenly promised land with all its spiritual riches, not the least of which is eternal life as it is joined with heavenly glory. So it's not Christ's return, it's not the resurrection from the dead that's in view here, but it's the heavenly inheritance, uh, as it is called in uh, 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 4 speaks of this. An inheritance incorruptible and undefiled that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. So there we, there we have it. We said that this hope had to have as its foundation the promise of God. Now that promise is found several places in the scriptures. Of course, the first Peter that we just looked at. Uh, John, in the very words of Christ, a direct promise of Christ. John chapter 14, and conjoined, I might add, with, uh, with the uh, second coming. John 14, verses 1 through 4. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And whither I go, you know, and the way you know. So here is the promise of the of Christ's preparing of a place for them in heaven, uh, preparing of heavenly mansions. Hebrews also, uh, chapter 11 and 12, but chapter 11, verse 8. This, uh, this promise was not known only to the disciples by the word of Christ. It was known to the patriarchs by faith. Abraham, when he was called to go out into a place which he should after receive for an inheritance, obeyed and he went out, not knowing where he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And then skip down to verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them far off and were persuaded of them and embraced them and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. Incidentally, that's a good definition of hope. They received the promises, they were persuaded of them, and they embraced them going on and confess that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country, and truly if they'd been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had, had, might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is a heavenly. Wherefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he's prepared for them a city. So you, you see here, in the very language of Abraham finding, being promised the promised land, we find out that Abraham wasn't looking at the real estate, principally. He was looking at what the real estate pointed to, which is the heavenly country, the heavenly inheritance, the heavenly city, whose builder and maker is God. So the patriarchs had this hope of a heavenly inheritance. And chapter 12, verse 22, You are come unto Mount Zion, unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, 
to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn which are written in heaven, to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of just men made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of the new covenant, and to the blood of sprinkling that speaketh better things than that of Abel. Verse 28, Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace, whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear. <clears throat> so there was a promise of a heavenly eternal inheritance accompanied with spiritual riches, the chief of which eternal life joined with heavenly glory. Now we said also that these things were already a present reality, not something that uh, was going to be done to them. And that, and that we see is, is very understandable. Christ says, I, I go to prepare a place for you. They were looking for a heavenly country. It's already there. The inheritance is there. The heavenly country is there. The heavenly true Canaan is there. The spiritual riches are there. The grace is there. The eternal glory is there. Even eternal life is something in the Scriptures we are said to enter into as if it was already there. Not principally something done to us. Something we enter into and become a partaker of. So that's the meaning. That's the hope we're talking about here. The hope of the internal, of the eternal heavenly inheritance, eternal life and heavenly glory in the heavenly Canaan, the mansions prepared by Christ. Now, we said there was a second consideration, and that was, uh, how does this relate to the thanksgiving of Paul and Timothy? How does this relate to the faith and love of the Colossians? We said at the outset that the grammar indicates that the hope stored up for the Colossians in heaven was a ground or a basis and in fact principal subject of Paul's thanksgiving. Let's first talk about what we don't mean and then what we do mean by this idea. I do not mean, and this text does not mean, that the hope was the sole and ultimate ground of their thanksgiving or subject of their thanksgiving, as if Paul and Timothy heard of the faith and love, but they didn't give thanks because of that. They just gave thanks because of the heavenly inheritance. The wrong preposition is used for that to be the meaning. Can't be the meaning. And we've already seen, by comparing this with other scriptures, that yes, indeed, they were thanking God for the faith and faith of the Colossians in Christ Jesus and their love to all the saints. The question then is this, or two questions, how was the hope of the Colossians' heavenly inheritance the basis for Paul thank, Paul's thanksgiving? And how is that hope in that capacity related to the Colossians' faith and love? We'll answer those in the reverse order that I gave them. Uh, first of all, consider this. Faith in Christ and love to all the saints, we saw last week, are the cardinal evidences of true salvation. So that when Paul and Timothy heard a credible report that the Colossians professed and owned such a faith in Christ and that they practiced such a love for all the saints, Paul and Timothy could confidently, charitably count the Colossians as partakers, as fellow partakers of that true salvation. That's the first thing. Secondly, the inheritance in light is the inheritance of the saints. 
the inheritance incorruptible and undefiled belongs, Peter says, to the elect of God, to those who are begotten again, who are kept by the power of God. So he goes from the very beginning to the very end, to election, to the new birth, to final perseverance, Peter does. That's, those people are the ones to whom the inheritance belongs. The many mansions that Christ talked about are for his true disciples. The heavenly Canaan is for the true Israel. The eternal promised land is for the true children of Abraham. In short, the glory laid up in the heavens, of which the Colossians had hope, is laid up for and only laid up for those who are partakers of the true salvation. All right? Third point. Faith in Christ Jesus and love to all the saints by evidencing true salvation, thus also evidence a right to the promise of eternal glory. A right to the promise of the of the heavenly inheritance. Do you, you see what I'm saying here? If you have faith and love, you have the true salvation. The promise of the heavenly inheritance is to those with the true salvation. So if you have faith and love, you show that you have a title in the promise of the true salvation. So the Colossians, by demonstrating this faith and love, showed that they were heirs to this to this promise that it could be said of them that there was a hope laid up for them in the heavens, for you, you Colossians, because of your faith and love. So that's the connection between the faith and love and the hope. That's how it relates together. The faith and love evidence the true salvation. The promise is to those who have the true salvation. So the faith and love evidence the right to the promise. Now, back to the thanksgiving. <clears throat> The point here is that Paul and Timothy gave thanks to God as they did that. It was not merely with regard to the Colossians' faith in Christ Jesus and love to all the saints. They had an eye beyond those things to the glory treasured up for the Colossians as those with that faith and love. They had an eye to the promise held forth to that faith and love. They had an eye to the consummation of that faith and love. When there would no longer be a faith, a knowledge, but in part, or an imperfect love and service, but there would be a knowledge in whole and a perfect love. As one commentator, John Eady, writes, the report of their faith and love prompted them to give thanks. But as they gave thanks, the final issue and crown of those graces rose into prominence before them. Their faith and love viewed not merely in present exercise, but also in their ultimate consummation and bliss were the grounds of their thanksgiving. So then, as Paul and Timothy hear and reflect upon the Colossians' faith, it is not merely as an increase in their own party or as an adherent to their views that they see. Rather, they see those destined to inherit eternal glory. They see those who will partake of the future glory of eternal life, of the precious heavenly treasure. And for this, 
and for the faith and love that evidence it and lead to it, they give thanks. Now, this discussion gives rise, I believe, to several important applications. One of the great glories of the New Testament and of the church in its soundest days is its heavenly mindedness. I don't mean shallow pietistic escapism or the false holiness that considers daily living to be just like a filthy swine pen. What I mean is true heavenly mindedness. And this consists especially in, or perhaps we should say is especially founded upon, an enthusiastic adherence to the promises of the future age. Not merely a bookish knowledge of them, no, but a holding of these promises as a matter of active, present hope. Now, what kinds of promises are we talking about? Well, one that comes to mind is the promise of the Lord's coming. The knowledge and hope of Christ's return was a fundamental mark of New Testament Christianity. And this active hope uh, seemed to color the nature of New Testament religion and the practical life of the New Testament saints. Another hope that comes to mind is the hope of the resurrection of the dead, and of course our great present promise, the hope of future glory, in the receiving of the saints' inheritance. Now the cares and riches of this world can be numbing and destructive of true spirituality. Uh, we know that because Christ says so, the apostles frequently warn against this happening. How is it that the cares and riches of this world are destructive, though? of that spirituality. Well, they take us off from the pursuit of the heavenly kingdom, from the setting of the heart upon heaven, from care for the soul's eternal destiny, from treasuring up of reward in heaven by faithful good works here on earth. And that is a warning that we need to heed. And the way to overcome such earthly mindedness is by cleaving to, meditating upon, and being motivated by, and living by, these promises of the future. Holding them dear. These things are so vitally important, and the things which they oppose are so terribly destructive to true holy living, that we would all do well to consider our own hearts. Are these promises precious to us? such that we could hardly live another day without them? Or are they mere book doctrines that have minimal impact upon our lives? Do we live by these hopes and thoughts in the earnest expectation of their fulfillment, framing our lives by them and by their implications? Or do we live as those buried in the cares of the world? What shall we eat? What shall we drink? With what shall we be clothed? buried by the pursuit of gain and riches. And remember, the pursuit of comfort can be just as devastating as the pursuit of wealth, because all too often we never quite get there somehow, do we? The second major application relates not to our own state, but to our response to the grace of God given to others. As Paul and Timothy heard of the faith and love of the Colossians, a glorious vista opened up to their view. And they saw not merely professors of the Christian faith. They saw not merely adherents to themselves. They saw not merely do-gooders. They saw those who would inherit the kingdom 
of the Lord Jesus Christ, those to whom a promise was given of eternal glory, spiritual riches beyond measure, grace upon grace. And in the face of those awesome truths, they bowed before God with profound, humbling thanksgiving. Is this how we hear of the faith of others? How inconsistent this is with the gross, disgusting numbers mentality of, of our day. Uh, the notch-on-the-belt religion, which only hears of something as insofar as another convert to add to the rolls. But equally inconsistent with that perversion of the truth is the deep pessimism which marks many who hardly believe any conversion but their own and whose first consideration is to see how quickly they can undo the report of uh, this conversion of another and so relieve themselves of any duty to joy and confirm themselves in their own dark temper. And how inconsistent with the Pharisaic party spirit, which rejoices not at the profound implications of the salvation of a soul, but at the swelling of their own sect's numbers. Is this how we receive such news? Or are we carried up to the lofty heights surveyed by Paul and Timothy, and thus filled with grace ourselves by God's grace to others? Finally, we ought to consider how this verse may apply to ourselves. If we have this faith and love, if we are true saints, then we too have this bountiful inheritance as our own hope. Now, most people, if they knew that they were soon to inherit or receive the virtually uncountable wealth of some Arab sheik, some oil kingdom, or even the modest, rich estate of a relative, if, if they knew that they were to receive this certainly on a particular day in the future, and it would all be theirs to enjoy, they would, they would be marked, they would be unrestrainable in their joy. They would be having an eager longing and expectation. All they would think about is that about the riches they were to come into the possession of and, and how immeasurable they were and what they could do with them. Oh, and it would be leaping and bouncing off the walls, most people, I think. But here is an inheritance promised that is immeasurably richer and greater than that of all the wealth of all the world combined. With what joy ought we to receive such news with what joy ought we to be marked, knowing that we will receive such an inheritance? With what longing and expectation ought we to be filled? But alas, the lack of such a response is merely the confirming evidence of our own being drowned in the cares and riches and pleasures of this life. How we need to cast our eyes again upon the riches of Christ, eternal glory, eternal life, and be renewed to our first love and invigorated again in our service and hope. And may God so make it to be in each one of us. Amen.